Reading List Leaders is a four-part oral gathering recorded as a podcast series by visual artist and poet Vita Somya, with sound designed by artist Kim Modig, produced by Frame Contemporary Art Finland within the context of the Rehearsing Hospitalities Public Programme 2019-2023. Reading List Leaders is an extension of Vita Somya's poem and wall mural Reading List, the first work in a series of artistic commissions at Frame Contemporary Art Finland's office space in Helsinki. Each of the four podcasts will be released every Tuesday over four weeks between May 5th to May 26th, 2020. Each week, Vita Somya will host conversations and readings with her invited reading list leaders. Welcome everyone to the Reading List Leaders. My name is Vidha Somya and I will be your host. Given that we are doing our best to stay healthy, calm and optimistic, there is no doubt that these are difficult times. In a time like this, even while we are home, it is easy to get isolated and therefore it is worth remembering that despite the current situation, we are still a community and each of our actions can inspire, motivate and have a long-lasting effect on those close to us and afar. We may be physically distanced from each other, but we can still create and maintain contact as we take breaks from washing hands, news cycles, online meetings and stirring a weekly batch of soup. Times are stressful and to ease through these testing times, I am hoping to amplify a sense of community, curiosity and our shared worlds so that we can still feel connected. With this in mind and through the support of Frame Contemporary Art Finland, I am happy to bring to you a series of oral gatherings as a podcast series which have been recorded over the past weeks. Under the title Reading List Leaders, each week we will gather around readings and discussions with the invited guests. Reading List Leaders was initially planned as a weekly gathering for reading and listening in the Frame Contemporary Art Finland office. Restrictions on the act of gathering in Finland, India and the world due to both COVID-19 and political unrest mean that this is not possible at this time. In the podcast series, this activity can continue in a complementary and meaningful way. Still a place to gather, the podcast conversations and readings activate, archive and share both the Indian writers who appear in my poem reading list and the reading list leaders themselves. The poem reading list was painted as a mural at Frame Contemporary Art Finland's office space in August 2019. The first work in a series of artistic commissions, the mural was launched during the Rehearsing Hospitalities public program in September 2019, accompanied by a reading of the reading list. Proposed as a list of 96 authors from India who should be in global reading lists, this list is potentially endless. The work was commissioned in the context of Rehearsing Hospitality's public program 2019-2023. to I'll say a few words about the poem. As I read my way through list after list, 
helpfully extended towards me by institutions, visiting lecturers and seminars in Finland, I encountered many silences. And to mend those silences, these names were my instinctual response. The mural painted multiple times over in colors such as green, blue, yellow and a final red were done to create a layered effect as a visual reference to the round-the-clock construction work in cities and as well outer walls of institutions that hold space for voices to express and to dissent in the form of posters, graffiti and signs. I take this opportunity to read to you Reading List. Let there be new reading lists of Mahvi Dhasal Kelkar, Daruwala Pritam and Ded, Ambedkar Singh Bhasin, Ramanujan Dehelvi and Seth, Rege Fazli Botalia, Koteshwaramma Vidyapati and Dhale. Nam Joshi Tripathi Das Gupta Devi Bond and Kamle Balmani Bagul Bagchi Madhvi Kutti Manto and Menon Roy Renu Revati Sobati Shivakami and Subramanyam Pavar Jahan Ravi Kumar Nehel Ghosh and Rokea, Begum Malagatti Morais, Kabir Desai and Sambharya, Dai Ao Sehgal, Bakshi Virani and Gokhale, Bama Naidu Kolatkar, Korea Patel and Phule, Gidla Kane Markandya, Kandaswami Hashmi and Gargi, Chandramoli Chandrika Guha, Narayanan Gole and Chakravarti, Dasnavi Jusavala Chauhan, Elvin Koregaonkar and Parsai, Janabai Vajahat Shyam, Chugtai Ezekiel and Ramabai. Erali Sili Jafri, Senapati Chaturvedi and Raman, Gaddar Chirappad Metrei, Shyamala Jha and Premchand should have long begun. Choose anyone. We will see how reading lists must expand now. In our previous gathering, Kamla Bhaseen followed up her poetry reading with insights into her work life. The anecdotal conversation was filled with ideas about how to shake off patriarchy through exercise and dance, how not to lose hope when fighting a long battle, how poetry has the power to subvert the most difficult of subjects, and how to find commonalities for friendship and solidarity. After two deeply engaging readings and conversations with Kamla Bhaseen and Shrujana Niranjani Shridhar in the last two gatherings, 
It is fitting that for the third oral gathering, our guest is Paramita Vohra, filmmaker, writer and public speaker based in Mumbai. Paramita Vohra's work mixes fiction and non-fiction to explore themes of desire, sex, love, urban life, popular culture and feminism. Her work spans various forms: film, sound installation, digital media, writing, interactive workshops and acting and has been broadcast internationally shown in museums such as the Tate Modern Welcome Collection and the National Gallery of Modern Art and has taught in universities around the world She is the founder and creative director of Agents of Ishq a first of its kind digital project about sex and love in India She writes two weekly columns paranormal activity in the sunday midday and how to find indian love in the mumbai mirror parumita vohra will read in english from a selection of her weekly columns in the indian express and the sunday midday two leading newspapers in india she will also read a recently published essay in the economic times on the current covid-19 crisis over to you parumita love in the time of protests as the protests against the citizenship amendment act first began amidst announcements videos of arrests demonstrations and calls for help the screenshot of a whatsapp message also circulated its sender was unknown it said i've reached red fort in case mar mar gaya to please tell mehak that mera pyar sachcha tha i forgive her for blocking me and that she can do much better than that chutia kostab which means i've reached the red fort in case i die or something Please tell Mehak my love was true. I forgive her for blocking me and she can do better than that fucker Kostab. In what already seems an innocent past 2 months ago, this made many people smile almost wistfully at the sweetness of youth and the sureness of passion. Everybody loves a lover. Some folks were sure the sender, let's call him X, was the better man who deserved to win the girl. Kostab was obviously a useless fellow, probably a mansplainer who would instantly dikhao kagaz e vast. One who can betray the revolution will obviously betray the maiden, hai na? that's what the guys who shared it felt anyway i too was charmed and shushed the part of my brain that wondered what line x had crossed to be blocked by mehak did kostab make mehak do it or was mehak one of those fragile people who see overtures as assaults also how we so sure x is a man could be any gender and wouldn't that change the romcom kahani any questions we ask about the text outside the familiar script of ishq and inkalab leads to disquieting thoughts the kind that make you wonder if when it comes to romantic love most times are potentially a time of violence mini menises was 17 when she ran away to join the maxlite movement spending years underground always moving to evade capture always alert always watchful as we must be in times of violence ask anyone in an abusive relationship with a state or a mate it was a time of intensity Mini now 63 told me we were young danger surrounded us we could be arrested and tortured some of our friends were some died we could too so it was also sexually intense suffused with a sense of carpedium there was also a lot of questioning about monogamy sexual freedom for women which the men weren't always comfortable with how did you think about love i asked i don't think we did the sense of danger that any time you could be taken and so could the other person 
You didn't want attachment. You were careful not to get attached. Some months ago at a workshop by Agents of Ishq, AOI, a multimedia project on love, sex and desire that I run, I asked some young men what was the hardest thing about relationships nowadays. The effort not to fall in love, said one young man, tentatively, and the entire room exhaled. That sounds tiring. Very tiring, said someone. But if you get attached, you could suffer. The other person could make a fool of you. Always alert, always watchful. How uncool to think about love, etc. It's like the news anchor in the Republic TV of your head warning. No one is safe. People just want to make tukre tukre of you. They are lying when they say they love the country. Don't believe them. They will hurt you. Be alert. Love is fake news. Following this conversation, we did an informal survey at AOI, asking people one thing they loved and one thing they hated about relationships nowadays. Love that there's choice, that sex is not taboo, that you have many partners, experiment, open up relationship styles. Hate that it's always undefined. You're not supposed to have feelings, declared response upon response. Every time I share a cab with a young woman, I hear war stories from dating country. Many begin with, we shared the same politics. Why then was everything so difficult, so diminishing, I hear them wonder. Why did the other stealth, ghost, bench, breadcrumb or otherwise treat them like they did not matter? Isn't that swipe left if you lean right approach like wanting to marry someone in the right caste, I ask? Maybe it's better to cage folks for love behavior before political positions? Would I be able to take this advice? The jury is out, as it always seems to be when you need it. Anyway, if you want to ask for love, what are you supposed to say? Feels like the last time someone asked what is love, it was the musician Hadaway in 1993, and his answer was an instruction to others. Baby, don't hurt me no more. Once, raging with hurt, I found myself before a therapist saying, Things were beautiful when his life was fine. The moment he had difficulties, though. In peacetime, it was boundless love. When it's wartime in his life, it feels so inimical. Yes, it's wartime, she responded. In wartime, we feel a storm and we fight it. That's when you need to give love, to accept mistakes and missteps. You are not angry because you are hurt. You are angry because you feel you cannot express your love. Well, how insta-worthy the cynical wartime part of me thought. Express love and be taken for a fool. But the peacetime me, who believes in love, knew it's true. Except, what is love? Is it possible to sit with love before those who have hated us and hurt us? How long can we do this, past the first surge of romance and revolutionary hope? Can we sit in a big mela and say, please, come meet us for tea? Even while those who cling to their wounds prefer to cling to power, to keep their faces averted from a message of love? And do those who advocate an encompassing message of love in turn Avert their faces from those who say, we don't agree with your definition of love. What does it take for eyes to meet across a room crowded with differences? Love is love, says the queer movement, where some answers gleam, defined against the violence of patriarchy that fixes our meanings. Desire might fertilize fresh definitions. But this year at Mumbai Pride, a conflict emerged between those who wished to expand the discussion to include those still outlawed by the same edifices that outlawed being LGBTQI, to address issues like Kashmir, caste, being trans, and those who felt this was diffusing the issue. It ended with rifts offline and online, and 50 people booked for sedition. We're all feeling attacked, so we are all attacking. There is no wound, only injury. Is anything queer anymore, or are we all becoming straight, wrote a friend to me. We always rely on politics to tell us what love should be. Why don't we rely on love to tell us about what politics could be? 
Love, which requires we be vulnerable, have our essence contaminated by another being. Love, which makes wounds, but also heals. What political suggestions does it make when we are told violence is the only truth? We don't ask what is love any more than we ask what is politics. Maybe both are about simply being able to ask those questions together, prepared for new answers each time. The Chinese philosopher Meng Zhi believed that since people are capable of compassion to those close to them, they are capable of extending this to all people and thereby to themselves. This loving approach helps us value all things, relationships, identities, roles, jobs, others and ourselves equally. This inherent goodness is cultivated if they grow up in a morally rich society, which respects the interdependent nature of relationships and within relationships is hospitable to diverse individual qualities. This feels like a useful invitation to define love when a competitive society chiefly advocates self-interest. Mengzhi also said that if the king loves music, there is little wrong with the land. Maybe a king who can commission a song that asks what love is will help us to say, as another song goes, what we want, what we really, really want. Who knows what we might discover? Maybe that Kostub is actually a perfectly nice guy. My True North All renewal begins with the self. Some years ago, I made a new friend, R. Or more correctly, given that I am secretly shy, yes, we exist, and manifestly lazy, R made friends with me, seeking me out frequently and showering me with interest. We enjoyed our time together, talking endlessly, curious about each other's minds and quick to share a wicked joke or mischievous gossip. We felt affection and concern for each other. R admired me and expressed it often to me and the world, which made me feel both validated and uneasy because I didn't behave the same way. If it sounds like a romance, that's because every friendship is in fact one. To enjoy each other, to feel one's intellectual and emotional sense-making of the world enlivened by a different perspective, to be soothed when hurt or teased when self-important, and in the process, to reveal oneself as much as to have oneself revealed through the friend. What else is that but a kind of love? That is why friendships so hospitable to a deep individuality, help us renew our relationship with ourselves. Yet, I was often ambivalent about time spent with R. The air between us was sometimes restless with dissatisfaction, and I would feel I was falling short of being the perfect friend. Perhaps it arose simply from the contrast of R being emotionally efficient, while I'm an emotional spendthrift, quick to cry and speedy to thrill. I would think, maybe at first we covet an opposite quality in someone, but perhaps it soon begins to frustrate and destabilize us. It will shift. But over time, the dissonances thickened. R regarded me with distrust. I became withholding and passive-aggressive. I complained incessantly to friends who, fed up, would say, why don't you stop being friends then? I would instantly feel guilty and ungrateful. I would think of the warmth, generosity and affection R showed me and judge myself for over-analyzing the discord. No, no, R is not so bad, I would say. After all, you are hearing only my side of things. I pride myself on a commitment to friendship. And had other friendships not had their share of disaffection? Where there is intimacy, there is likely to be some violence. But as lovers entangle and disentangle limbs and adjust curves and breathing distance till they find a good fit in sleeping together, so we had wriggled and shifted, retreated and advanced to find the right shape for our friendships. The hurt cushioned by the love, the compassion, the companionship and shared enjoyment. Surely with our two, it was only a matter of trying. But the save-the-friendship mode only turned the friendship from a pleasure into a chore on both sides. Eventually, this harrowing interaction became to its natural conclusion, a big fight, 
during which I found myself shouting at R. I don't know why you want to be friends with me. You don't seem to like me at all. The room faltered into silence. R teared up to my surprise. We never really spoke again after that. Sometimes when a really true truth has been spoken, it is hard to go back to moderated truths. I realized I had been constantly trimming bits of myself through the relationship, trying to curate a version of me that would not irk or be irked by R, and yet would not be a defeat of myself. In essence then, as I saw it, R had finally rejected me. To be the victim is a moral delight and a juicy temptation. But in truth, had I not also failed to accept R? In other words, I must accept that I too had rejected R. Rejection, that monster under our beds we do everything to keep at bay. But that may be because we believe rejection is a one-way act of power, where one rejects and the other is rejected. The truth is that in many instances, rejection is often mutual. In this moment of mutual rejection, R and I had, in fact, released each other from a clumsy dance of non-acceptance, equally of the other and of ourselves. In the days that followed, I felt a sense of expansion, at first guiltily, then with a kind of inner unfurling and unfolding. Talking to a friend about the fight, I said, the one thing I understood was, I really am like this, I can't be different. If it's awful, so be it. Now I was like a novitiate, renewing my vows to myself. I felt a strong sense of who I was, a queer straight woman, yes, we exist, an artist who always takes the longest scenic route, a romantic feminist, a gregarious curmudgeon, yes, we do exist, irritable and a bit egocentric, though generally nice enough, and that a territory comes with it. In my work life too, I have often felt, as all artists do, a bit rejected by the liberal establishment. But after all, I've always had the choice to make different acceptable work, right? Love, need, difficulty can make us alter our behavior. But our nature, like all things in nature, is a place of fertile and uncontrollable growth. Love, need, difficulty can make us alter our behavior. But our nature, like all things in nature, is a place of fertile and uncontrollable growth, governed by its own logic. It finds its own way in the world, its own unruly growth. Each mutual rejection, if we can see it as mutual, returns us to ourselves, renews the understanding of who we are to ourselves, our tendencies, our curiosities, our desires, our limitations. A rose by any other name would simply be prickly, so to speak. In the contemporary moment, being yourself is often sold to us as something ineffable, as if there is a virgin self, noble and unadulterated, found in the departmental store of life between Oroville mindfulness and vintage chic, which we must find and display for best results. This is a capitalist sense of self we are encouraged to have, one which can be curated into a seamless narrative of the personal, where vulnerability becomes an identity, not a state we pass through on the way to a different self. It is an emotional efficiency model where every act and feeling must yield a response, an outcome, measurable attention, or we begin to feel invisible, unseen, unseeable, something exemplified by social media. It is a treadmill pretending to be a journey. Our social media lives may seem self-centered. Our social media lives may seem self-centered, but in fact they primarily face outwards to the gaze of other people, more public than private. If anything, they are not self-centered, self-involved enough in a poetic sense. Where is the room for secret dark places in our nature, where strange flora petaled and bacterial bloom, alerting us to our own leanings? This fertility in dark, wet, sometimes lonely places of the self is an emotionally inefficient but regenerative process. There are no relationship agreements to be made here, no guarantees of love or success. 
and the permanent risk of being inconvenient to some and irrelevant to others. Some seeds fall on fallow ground, some result in passionately blooming flowers and medicinal plants. Living in the world is a meditative and mysterious path, but its product is not a controlled and self-congratulatory vulnerability, but a violent yet meaningful vulnerability. It is the constant mirror play of revealing yourself and being revealed in relationships for the creature you are or are becoming. The business of being yourself or becoming yourself is mostly a helpless act, often bloody and cyclical, born from the risky collisions with other minds, hearts and bodies. The tip of your tongue. Last week, two artists were painting an Urdu poem in the Nastalik script on a Delhi wall when a crowd gathered. They heckled the artists, calling them Lahori, implying they were traitorous, terroristic and other such things. The police echoed some of these attitudes until the state government intervened. The wall painting was part of a state government beautification program. This antagonism was in response to the common but lately toxic divided thinking which sees Urdu as a Muslim language, while Hindi is Hindu and by extension, national or Indian. In her essay, My Name is Urdu and I Am Not a Muslim, writer Rana Safi points out, the total population of Muslims in India is 13.4% of the country's population. So if Urdu is supposed to be the language of Muslims, why don't the Muslims of Kerala speak it? Muslims represent a majority of the local population in Lakshadweep, 93%, and they all speak Malayalam. Why do Muslims of West Bengal speak Bangla? As Arabic is the language of the Quran, many Muslims might try to read it. But so, Urdu does not automatically become a Muslim language any more than Sanskrit becomes a Punjabi Hindu's mother tongue because they recite the Gayatri Mantra each morning, as my grandmother and father did. And just because I don't recite the Gayatri Mantra, which I don't, doesn't mean I can't enjoy the beauties of Sanskrit. Initially forced to study Sanskrit when I barely knew Hindi, I hated it. But thanks to my Sanskrit teacher who decided to tutor me during lunch breaks, thank you Mrs. Jen, I learned to trace its symmetries, structures and rhythms to understand how language itself, Hindustani or English, worked and to take delight in its inventions. In my house we spoke Hindustani and English, at the risk of being simplistic, English was the language of individuality, being treated as an adult, perhaps. Hindustani was the language of informality and intimacy. Scolding was done in both languages, English for shame, Hindustani for emotional blackmail, a deadly combo. But language itself is a deadly combo of intellect, sensuality, humor, nuance and clarity. And of words, from the many languages it has encountered. Language packs the experiences and histories and rhythms of culture. The more it mixes and remixes, the more alive it is. Any basic linguistic history shows that Hindi and Urdu always had a shared life until colonial linguists separated them on religious lines. In its life, Hindustani has been called Hindavi, Dehelvi, Urdu, Dakhani, Rekta. An essay by Imre Bange in the book Before the Divide, edited by Francesco Orsini, tells us, a musical term Rekta was used prior to the 18th century to describe a kind of text in which one sets Hindi and Persian words to a rag and a tal, to a rhythm and a melody. Despite the baggage of that divide, Hindustani continues to be found thus in the Hindi film song, in everyday cultural expressions, echoed stylistically in the mixings of English, in advertisements and deliciously time-pass internet memes. We can no more take the Urdufication out of our Hindi than we can take the Hindification out of Urdu. Even the fellows who heckle the wall artists must be heartbroken sometimes. 
without some Urdu in their Hindi, just like the whiskey in their water, what songs would they sing? Speaking in tongues. The Sri Ram Sene, denizens of some phantasmagoric video game called Aspirational Taliban, declared last week that they would cut off the tongue of any writer who dared criticize Hinduism. Looked at practically, this is a puzzling threat, as writers don't write with their tongues but with their minds and hands. But cultural barriers are not literal ones. The tongue is indeed a potent symbol as it has so many meanings. Babies stick out their tongues as they learn to use their mouths. They also put everything in their mouths to understand it because their mouths have more nerve endings per square millimeter than any other part of their body. Our mouths and tongues develop faster than our hands. The tongue symbolizes speech, sex, mischief, thought, taste, teasing, defiance, concentration, anticipation of something delicious, even the realization of one's own mistakes. Definitely not the favorite choice for the Ramsene and their ilk. If there is an organ of interpretation, the tongue is it. The Ramsene mindset is uneasy precisely with the idea of so much exploration and so many meanings in one place. Though claiming to be the guardians of Hinduism, they are in fact uneasy with its million interlinked tributaries and open-ended strands, the palimpsest of meanings it has acquired over a long history, and diverse practices across wide geographies. To reduce something to one meaning is to make it controllable. That's futile though, because when life itself is uncontrollable, meanings are as plentiful as nerve endings in the tongue. The fact that we hold our tongues suggests that while we may sometimes keep our counsel in the face of someone else's vociferousness, our meanings remain within us. Maybe it's time for round two of Give the Ram Sene Something. Except this time, instead of pink chaddis, maybe we should give them books of poetry. The better to appreciate the exhilarating pleasure of multiple meanings, which even nursery rhymes offer. On the other side of the world's waters, the tongue had a different kind of outing. Pan Malin's film Angry Indian Goddesses was runner-up for Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. Announcing this, the media featured images of the seven protagonists of the film sticking out their tongue a la Goddess Kali. The trailer of this film, in which, as per one film journal, women channel their inner Kali, the angriest Indian goddess, hold out promise of either designer guilty pleasure fun or unbearable boho chic for feminism. But this image though clearly done for fun, still made me cringe a little. Meanings are generated from context. If the context of understanding is limited to the idea of Kaliya's exotic, mystic, primeval, Hindu, feministish figure, then one wonders about the potency of these symbols. The conception of the strong, powerful woman as Kali has now become its own cliché, a stock image of woman power that controls the multiple meanings of feminism. Saying Aurat Devi ka roop hai is a kind of tired idea both from those who would like to domesticate women and those who claim to want their liberation. The figure of Devi, the goddess, also has multiple meanings, manifestations and narratives that our jaded tongues rarely get to taste. Whether regressive or progressive, one-dimensional ideas cut off our tongues in some sense. It is left to us to find some new way to generate meanings from life and art. As Grace Nichols, a poet I love, writes in her poem Epilogue, I have crossed an ocean, I have lost my tongue. From the root of the old one, a new one has sprung. At Political Peace Last week, a paper reported the story of 40-year-old Priya Zagade, a receptionist, paralyzed from the waist down, whose husband Pradeep Zagade, a fireman, died in a work accident. She has refused to deposit her compensation check of 16 lakhs, uh, that's 1.6 million rupees, demanding instead a probe into alleged infrastructural irregularities. 
She has sought appointments with officials from the BMC and the fire department, but they have been busy or unwilling and haven't met her. When Ms. Zagare talks of her husband, we can see they share a wonderful, moving love. Childhood sweethearts from the same chawl, he built a special ramp for her to negotiate their building steps. Perhaps this sort of love is a kind of great justice, proof that we matter after all in a world of dispensable numbers balancing out the hardships of life. And we all know what it is to be bereft and betrayed when this is taken from us. Often, when we use the language of justice, it's because we do not provide a public language for the many dimensions of loss or human experience. The system does not or cannot recognize the emotional ravaging as an equally fundamental part of the loss because it seems materially non-compensable. It's unclear whether there is a genuine functional problem that led to the fireman's death, and surely by providing compensation the state has done its job. But the fact that senior department people will not give her an ear points to a strange adolescent evasion common in our society. Somehow there has to be a means to build this kindness into the procedure of compensation, to affirm through the way the system is designed that people do, after all, matter. Sometimes love is just a matter of having said you are sorry. Across the universe from Priya Zagare and these feudal evasions, an MLA, Ravi Rana, is cooking up a new age mantra for evasion, which can only leave you opening and closing your mouth like a silent film comedian. That's fine with Mr. Rana, really, as long as you keep your eyes closed meanwhile. He would like to hold Baba Ramdev's yoga camps in the assembly. Control your satisfied chortle at the thought of our unbeloved MLAs laid low by ignominious asanas. Mr. Rana is not resting any such innocent justice for us. His aim, through the spiritual escalation, MLAs will no longer be caught up in petty issues like um, caste and language. Now, who are we to tell Mr. Rana, who is after all in politics, that caste and language lie at the heart of so many overt and covert injustices in our society? In fact, who are we to tell any of the numerous people who run to a pasana out of living or just the nearest feng shui frog and serene scent candle shop without also addressing one bit the political texture of their lives? How does it matter if our lives are part of the grand design of consumerism, ignorance, injustice or whatever else we do that doesn't help the caste and language problem go away as long as we feel one with this cosmos? One of the most remarkable things in Tezuka's manga of Buddha's life is that the Buddha is never beatific for long. He suffers till the end, his compassion making it impossible to evade the injustice of the world. At no point does his spirituality disconnect him from the materiality of life around. Sometimes justice, like love, means shrugging off these facile divisions and evasions, looking the truth in the eye and recognizing it in all its complexity. The Other Me, or Is the COVID-19 Pandemic Perfect Opportunity for Humans to Introspect? The meditative quiet of my current physical isolation is regularly punctuated by the soft chachings of calendar notifications. As I clean coriander, slice onions, wash the mixie, and attend online meetings at home, an other me of the notifications roams around the world. Birkbeck College Panel, Morocco Conference, Delhi Seminar, your flight is delayed. It is like watching myself in a parallel dimension. To this always heading somewhere me, I used to sing the Paul McCartney song, the other me would rather be the glad one. The other me would rather play the fool. But where was the time for that? And was it even an option? For a couple of decades now, we have imagined ourselves as travelers in a world of choices. We have played with time, a double track of online and offline time, in several places at once. We were always heading to a future, to a more successful version of ourselves, consuming experiences and sensations 
and keeping as many options open as we did apps on our phone. Tinder bio said, collector of moments, not things, as if that made us unworldly. But the truth was, that thought tethered you firmly to the global enterprise of optimizing time, getting the most out of it as a consumer experience. Hence, time always seems endless, yet never enough. Adil was always supposed to mango more. Now, we are stopped in those tracks. We find ourselves joined together across the world in waiting for COVID-19 to reveal our future. But it is a perverse oracle, revealing only our pasts, the disparities and distances between us and within us. Time is smiling to itself, refusing to be planned, pushing us to ask ourselves, not whether time is enough, but whether we are enough for the times. Liberated from the calendar, I do not lack for deadlines. There is a writing challenge deadline, 500 words at 5 p.m. You know, numerology is a thing this year. In response to a prompt posted at 9 a.m. Sometimes only the players read each other's entries. Sometimes many other people do. But we are so caught up in writing, we aren't measuring the numbers. I have my niece's art challenge to do with her on WhatsApp video call every evening as we watch the sunset from her window. Her materially, I, virtually, yes, still online and offline at once, but joined, not parallel. Last weekend, I also had a singing video challenge. My mother coerced me into Result, showered with blessings from many senior citizens. Some of our choices are coming home to roost. From afar, they looked like starlings, but up close, turns out, they're Saleh Kabutar, bloody pigeons. A friend says, I'd rather die of corona than my neighbor at this point. Someone tweets, how strange to see your spouse in work mode. Did not know I was married to a let's circle back guy. Will this bring them closer or drive them apart, I wonder? Many of our tasks now are about subsistence, not profit. We cook and clean. We ask for help as help and don't disguise it with marketing jargon like collaboration or partnership. One of the things that has emerged from this is a Facebook community called Simple Recipes for Complicated Times, which has grown from one person's post into a 2,000-plus group. People post pictures of wilted bangles and forlorn lockies and other people suggest what they should make. Gourmet-level types, cooking newbies and regular enthusiasts all contribute tips they have learned. Stellar successes, utter disasters, and iffy experiments are duly reported, the star of which was surely a roti-making exercise which, let's say, did not work out. Was the tawa hot enough? Someone asked the cook. Tawa? was his puzzled response. We share, we laugh at ourselves, we recognize our good fortune without virtue signaling. As a friend and I discussed the group on the phone, I said, it feels like the old internet, no? It really does, she agreed. It's so nice. The old internet, where those who weren't in a hurry to go places used to play the fool. The new internet, it's like this. When I was not on Twitter, I used to be mystified by a friend who pounced on random one-liners. Oh, I'm stealing that line to tweet since you're not on Twitter. Perhaps it was flattering, but it also aborted the possibilities of conversational chemistry, this mining it for tweets. Another friend would interrupt every conversation bubbling with ideas with, Oh, you could write five columns out of that one paragraph. The new internet where you had to be a fast-moving consumer good, where someone was always choosing, had been hard with this insistence on performance and appraisals, pretending to be relevance. A bit like school with mean girls and toppers and backbenchers, where play is work and politics is only meaningful of the hashtag trends. The same goes for you, connected to everyone by competition, hyperlinked by hypercapitalism. In such a world, choice becomes not just a buzzword, but something of a compulsion. It is a next-is-what behavior you are constantly supposed to enact and signal in full view, rather than a political and personal process of consideration and commitment. Or as they say on Tinder, keep swiping. Love, shove, it's for losers. 
the more choices you have to play with, the more matches to choose from, the higher on the ladder you are. Connect, don't commit. The destination is always known. To point out that this makes the journey feel tedious makes others feel criticized and you seem churlish. In that world, to be alone, to commit to an open-ended journey was to be lost. And now, suddenly, that's where we are. A little lost, with no one to find us but ourselves. And then, ask that other me how they plan to change. Obviously, we will do a lot to avoid this confrontation. Rich people are apparently looking at themselves. When didn't they? Judging by all the privileged mea culpas around. Sighing about the camembert in their omelettes, the good reds on their table, laid by their live-in help. Oh, the class divide we live in, they cry. But we have no plan to end it any time because, after all, what's the use of making any plans in this time of corona? Other privileged people keep celebrating the return of nature, the dolphins of Venice, as if nature is also a home delivery app. A lot of this turned out to be fake news, but so tempting to fast forward to a post-apocalyptic resurgence without thinking too much about what you will choose to do differently. Some of us prefer to rewind to a pre-lapsarian era before choice paralyzed us, a childlike return to Doordarshan dramas and mythologies from a time when you couldn't choose what to watch, led by instructions of 9 minutes at 9 and 5 minutes at 5, as if we are children who don't have to make choices. Do as we are told and everything will be all right. But we are not children. This is a moment when we are being asked to grow up and take responsibility for our actions, to think about ourselves along with others. If we have seen the apocalyptic sight of workers walking home without food and water, of doctors begging for ventilators, we have to confront that we have more because someone has less, that less and more are not the same. We may want to endlessly outsource caring to someone else, donate to PM Cares without asking cares for whom, in order to be absolved of caring even for ourselves. The clanging of plates and lighting of lamps may offer a fleeting illusion of connection. But don't the noise and the darkness make it a little hard to see and hear what lies before us and commit to a way ahead in kinship and connection, not competition? We're a bit out of practice at that. It seems scary. But here is a not-fake note from nature to give you courage. Last week, the city of Jalandhar woke up to the magnificent sight of the Dholadhar Mountains on the horizon, visible without the fog of endless capitalist consumer nation endeavor, otherwise called pollution. It must be true then. On a clear day, you can see forever.